Good morning, good afternoon, welcome to the Freedom and Wealth Podcast. This is your host, Brian Nicolason. Today is Monday, March 13th, 2023. I've been, uh, you know, wanting to do a podcast anyway, and we basically have to do one today because we had one of the most significant financial events uh, that we've seen, I don't even know, it's probably since maybe, well, since COVID, <laughs> uh, but pre that, you know, since 2008, I mean, we've had the largest bank failure since 2008 just happened. We're now on a third bank failure uh, in the past week. And um, this is really interesting. So there's a, a whole lot to talk about that. Um, I've titled this Time to Dust Off the Stagflation Playbook. And so I think really there's a lot of comparisons you can draw to the 1970s. I know people have been trying to make that analogy for a long time in this inflationary cycle, but I think it's it's definitely something uh, that is, is fairly comparable today. Um, so we're going to talk through a very interesting analysis of what happened with the banks and what the what the trajectory forward is. Before we do that, since we're talking about the 1970s, you know, let's talk a little music um, because I'm a big music fan. So, you know, I actually just went in and said, hey, top top hits of the 1970s on Google and it put up like 100 songs and I went through and I picked my favorite bands out of those, you know, top hit songs and, uh, you know, let, let's talk just a little bit about music. I mean, Led Zeppelin is, to me, probably the most badass rock and roll band, um, you know, and so, you know, I'm young, so I, I didn't see Led Zeppelin, but I was lucky enough to see Robert Plant and uh, with his band and he played a bunch of Led Zeppelin songs. And that was absolutely amazing. Uh, seeing Robert Plant, I mean, you you know, you see the when you're at a concert, sometimes the artists will have the the crowd do something, you know, whether calling back and forth or something. But when Robert Plant told everybody to put their hands up and and wiggle their fingers, I think he said um, the entire every single person there, man, woman, child was there raising their hands uh, for Robert Plant. So I think that was an amazing show. But yeah, I mean, Led Zeppelin is awesome. Uh, Steve Miller Band was on there. Also a huge Steve Miller Band fan. Um, I also saw Steve Miller, and he was amazing. He actually told a story, which I think was really interesting, um, about when he blew up. I think it was 1969. It was the late 60s when he originally released uh, The Joker. And he had recorded the song and sent it out or whatever, and nobody was picking it up. Nobody was playing the song, and so he actually gave up on his dream um, of being a, an artist and he was going to become a truck driver and he was driving his car cross country, like going to California, I think. I'm not sure where he was coming from, but he was driving out, um, to take a trucking job. And all of a sudden on the radio, the Joker came on and he couldn't even believe it. He said, Oh my God, you know, that's my song. And he changed the radio station and the Joker was on the next station. He changed it again. The Joker was on the next station. And he realized right there that, you know, his career was about to take off, and it absolutely did. And uh, so, Steve Miller, love listening to Steve Miller Band. Um, you know, Leonard Skinner was on there. I'm gonna put shout them out. They, I, I have seen them as well, just not with Ronnie Van Zant, obviously. Um, but it's my wife's favorite band, is Leonard Skinner. So uh, I'll shout them out. And actually, if you haven't watched the documentary on Netflix about Leonard Skinner, that is really well done. And amazing how much they rehearsed and they practiced and, you know, they had a little cabin by a lake and they would just sit there and rehearse over and over and over again. And, um, you know, obviously it told the whole story about Ronnie Van Zandt, who was pretty, you know, pretty wild guy. 
and so I think that, again that documentary was was really good. One of the other bands, the last one that we'll just mention, uh, Steely Dan was on that list. That's some of my favorite music. I'm a big Steely Dan fan, and uh, you know, kind of my favorite music. Just play around the house, and uh, you know, enjoy such an easygoing band, easygoing sound, and just so many great songs. So anyway, um, because we're talking about the '70s, I uh, figured we'll start off on a lighter note, talking about some some music that I like, and I'm sure everybody feels the same about most of those bands. Um, but anyway. All right, so there is so much to cover regarding these three major U.S. bank failures that we've seen in the last seven days. Two of them fairly crypto-related, but you know, um, Silicon Valley Bank is obviously the one that's really we should be talking about. That's probably the most important one, and that is uh, the second largest U.S. bank to ever fail. And I think it's like two hundred billion in assets. The Washington Mutual bank failure was like three hundred billion in 08. so that was obviously much bigger, especially inflation adjusted. But um, you know, this is a huge, huge bank failure. And you know, I've said it many times: the Fed is going to raise interest rates and reduce their balance sheet, and and talk the talk and walk the walk, and they're they're tightening financial conditions, doing their quantitative tightening until there is a financial crisis. Right, I have pretty much said from the beginning they're not going to win this fight against inflation. Now they may have won some battles where inflation cooled off. It came from nine to six and a half. Okay, yeah, you, you know, you, I think that was some base effects and some other reasons why that happened—a reduction in commodity prices in the short term. Um, so that they kind of had a, a few things going for them, and they reduced inflation a bit. So you know, they, maybe they won a little bit of the battle. But I, I've said it from the beginning, there's no way they're going to win the war. They're never going to get inflation back down to that 2% target and, and peg it there. It's just not going to happen. You know, uh, you know, don't let the genie out of the bottle because it's hard to get the genie back in the bottle. You could, they, they've always said that about inflation. Inflation is extremely hard to get back in the bottle because it becomes embedded and it spirals, right? And so inflation is, is embedded in the economy today. Um, it's caused by monetary expansionary monetary and fiscal policy, and that happened in in spades over the last decade, right, or the last twenty years even. So we've printed so much more money that the inflation was inevitable, and it and it is absolutely not going anywhere. Okay, everybody needs to realize that. Um, so I've said it again and again that the Fed, yeah, they're gonna talk tough, they're gonna raise rates, they're gonna reduce their balance sheet up until there's a financial crisis. Now, this is a financial crisis if it weren't for some of the actions that the government took over the weekend. So, again, we're going we're gonna to get to that. I want to jump ahead. But, um, again, the Fed is going to be a hawk until they're not. And they're not right now. I'm pretty sure that they're pretty much done. Um, and, yeah, so this is definitely a financial crisis in the banking sector, which means there's other financial crises that are going to happen in the shadow banking sector, the pension funds the commercial real estates, uh, markets. So there's definitely other shoes to drop. This is the first one. And it's interesting it actually happened in the bank sector because I think so many analysts said our banking sector is so much stronger after 08 that it's not possible. Maybe it happens in real estate or some other market, but it's not going to happen in our banking sector. Uh, and that's exactly where it happened. The first the first shoe to drop was, was in the bank. Um, now, really funny hilarious, right? Because it goes to show you how little analysts know and reporters know. 
Forbes rated Silicon Valley Bank the best bank of 2023 just five days before it collapsed. So five days before it collapsed, Forbes came out with top 20 banks in America and rates Silicon Valley Bank number one, top best bank in America. Five days later, it's in receivership bankrupt. I mean, this you can't even make it up, right? Um, so what happened to Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, obviously, it had to do with the held to maturity security. So basically, you know, as... Interest rates were really low in 2019, 20, 21, um, and it's Silicon Valley Bank. So because interest rates were low, there was so much quantitative easing and money printing. It was a huge expansion in um, you know the VC market and startups in in tech, and so all these companies got a ton of funding, and so they were kind of primed to to be the depositor, de facto depositor for all these tech startups, and so they brought in a ton of capital in this really low interest rate environment. And they're trying to make money on your money, right? They're trying to get some, you know, some arbitrage action. So they were trying to get yield. Now they couldn't just put all this money at, you know, six month T-bills or, or you know, one month T-bills or anything because the yield was actually zero, right? So they would make literally no money. So they had to buy three-year treasuries, 10-year treasuries. Um, they went out and bought mortgage-backed securities, right? All Anything to get like one and a half percent, two percent yield. So they went out longer duration on these assets, and those were um, des designated on their balance sheet to be held to, to maturity. So um, basically the, what that means is that as interest rates started to come up in 2022, they didn't have to mark to market the losses. So they were actually still quoting everything at par, and so the bank looked really good, and that's probably what Forbes looked at, and Forbes said, oh, bank looks great, awesome. Well, all of a sudden, okay, um, you had a lot of these VC firms and, you know, the startup, the tech firms that they were funding needed capital, right? Because, you know, they weren't able to raise more capital. Um, their business models are struggling. Their stock prices are down, right? So they're getting beat up in the tech sector, right? In 2022. So they need more money. So they go in, they start pulling deposits out. And all of a sudden, Silicon Valley Bank comes to a point where they don't have enough liquid money because they put all this money out in long duration. And so, um, and you got their their little niche market is the market that got hit the worst and needs the most capital. So all of a sudden, the bank says, oh, we don't have enough money right now to meet the, de the demands of our depositors. So we're going to have to sell some of these held to maturity securities. And all of a sudden, they have to book losses. They have to start mark to marketing the securities as they're selling them. And all of a sudden, they start booking big losses, right? And then in a matter of a day or two, you know, it gets out, news gets out, oh, we're having a liquidity issue, uh, we're going to start booking these losses, stock price starts going down, more of the VC firms start telling the tech startups, hey, go get your money, you know, this bank not, might not be there. And all of a sudden, you have, again, snowball, you have a kind of a run on the bank, and they had to close their doors, right? And they went into receivership. So in a matter of like two days, all that happened last week. So you had a bank failure, right? Um, now, that's I incredibly interesting, but what happened after that is even more interesting. Now, this is a regional bank, and they're definitely less scrutinized on how much that they can hold on a hold to maturity designation on their balance sheet than some of the bigger banks. So they're more susceptible to these markdowns where the big banks are kind of held. They're always kind of mark marked to marketing the value of securities in a bigger way. So they're not as susceptible to, to having to sell, hold to maturity securities. They, they have access to more capital to meet um, liquidity demands for their customers. 
Um, but what's not different between this regional bank and all the other regional banks and then all the big banks as well is that all of these firms did go out on somewhat of duration, right? So like, okay, maybe we bought a 10-year treasury paying 1.5%. Well, all of a sudden you can get a treasury today, pay, well, not today, but last week, um, paying you know 5% on the short end, 4% on the long end. And you know the bank bank account's paying you 2% or, or less, right? 1% or zero still. And as a depositor, you're actually going to want to, you know, especially if you have a lot of money, you're going to want to take money out of your bank and buy a, a U.S. government treasury because you could get a much better yield uh, at the treasury market. And so that's really what there's this, um, you know, whether or not your depositor is going to leave the bank to buy higher yielding debt somewhere else, um, that's going to determine your susceptibility to uh, a bank run, right? Um, so... Again, this is all a problem when you manufacture these low interest rates, right? Like you create such a distortion where these banks are forced to take either higher risk or, or go out longer duration trying to get a little bit of yield so they can make a little bit of money. And so, but then as soon as the, the government goes in and now manufactures higher interest rates, all of a sudden you, you put these banks in an incredibly tough position to try and meet the same type of returns that the customers can get in the treasury market. And so it's unavoidable that tr that, that depositors are going to leave the banks and buy treasuries in a higher interest rate environment like this. So, you know, again, all the banks are going to have some of these issues. Now, they stemmed some of those losses uh, or stemmed some of the problems in the banking sector this weekend. So the government came out over the weekend and they're guaranteeing all depositors, no matter the amount. So they threw the $250,000 FDIC limit that's on every bank window on that little gold sign, right? Or I think if I remember correctly, it says you're insured up to $250,000. Well, that's written everywhere. That's like the law of land. Everybody knows that number, $250,000. Well, apparently it's no longer the number. They threw that out the window. And that is classical Joe Biden, uh, you know, Jerome Powell and... Janet Yellen, right, who runs the Treasury, I mean, those three are like just the epitome of do what you want, ask for forgiveness later. Um, and and basically, again, they threw that $250,000 limit out the window and they just said, well, we're going to insure any depositor any amount of money. And I don't care if you have $5 million in one bank, you know, we're going to insure you, right? Now, is that constitutional? I have no idea. I don't, I don't know that you could just change a law like that over a weekend with the signature of the president. I mean, how much power does the president have? I mean, this is like America just seems to be giving all the power to, you know, the president, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Like you're basically just letting these three people run everything. And accordingly, they just change the rule right over the weekend as they see fit. Right. Now, again, I am not a constitutional lawyer, but it seems like you would need to pass a law to change a law. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's part of the problems with these agencies, and that's why the government's done it this way. We did a podcast on this in the past. You know, we have like 1,200 agencies, right? Whether it's the SEC or the EPA or, you know, the DEC or there's 1,200 of them, right? And these agencies basically have unilateral control over what rules they want to make. And so, you know, maybe that's how they're doing it is the FDIC is its, its own agency and so they could just change the rules of that agency and so in effect we have a we're not basically bound by the constitution we're bound by these agencies that run everything 
And so the government appoints these agencies, and then the agencies can create any rules they want to meet their objectives that, that were given to them by the constitutional, uh, you know, by the congressional power that was authorized. And that's really the problem in America is these agencies, because there's no control, right? They're not elected officials. They're just people that work for the government that control our lives. And so, again, it's a, I'll try and get off my, my soapbox there. But again, the government comes in. They said, we're going to guarantee everybody over uh, 250000 doesn't matter. You're guaranteed you're going to get your money on Monday, right? Now, apparently, that cost of bailing out all these depositors is not going to come from the taxpayer, right? Of course. Of course, it's not going to be from the taxpayer. Well, who's it gonna who's gonna pay the cost, right? Well, it's gonna be a special charge that goes out to all the banks. So the banks are gonna pay to bail out these depositors of the Silicon Valley Bank. Now, first of all, if I was a bank and Charles Schwab put that out this morning in a note saying, "Hey, we have plenty of liquidity. We didn't take all these risks. We didn't have, you know, a, a business model that had these massive held to maturity." Securities, like we're not going to have any of these issues. So why am I paying for their problems, right? Now I would feel the same way if I was, you know, the CEO of Charles Schwab or the CEO of J.P. Morgan. I'd be pretty pissed about that too. It's like, come on, you know, they, they took all the risks, and yet all these banks are going to pay for it. But then I wouldn't be that pissed because you know what? I'm just going to pass all those higher costs on to my customers. So when Joe Biden says that the taxpayer is not going to pay for this bailout, they absolutely are. They're going to pay in the form of higher bank fees. Okay, so your bank fees in some way, form or fashion, whether you see it or not, your the cost to you to be a customer of a bank is going to go up because all these banks are going to cover the charges for these for these depositors. So if you don't think you live in socialist America, think again, you do, because you're bailing out a bunch of people that took excessive risk. And you, as a listener of this podcast and a bank account holder, are going to be the person bailing them out. No doubt about it, all right? So, furthermore, not only are we going to bail them out, right, through this special charge that, again, is going to get passed on to the customers. Furthermore, they've inserted a new liquidity window, right? A new way of uh, injecting money into the economy. And this is quantitative easing. Basically, the banks, so if Silicon Valley now, let's fast forward two weeks from now, if the same thing happened to another bank, let's call it, you know, <clears throat> Hudson Valley Bank, right? Because that's where I am in the Hudson Valley, New York. If Hudson Valley Bank has the same issue where their depositors are coming in, requesting money, they don't have enough money in their liquid accounts. And so they now they need to help sell some of these held to maturity securities at a 25% loss. Instead of having to do that, they can go to this new window that the Federal Reserve created and they can borrow against these held to maturity securities at par value. So if you have a million dollars worth of bonds, treasury bonds that are only worth $800,000, or $800, right? They're 20% loss. Instead of booking a 20% loss and running into the same problem that the Silicon Valley Bank ran into, you'll be able to just borrow and collateralize with the par value, the million dollars, right? So basically you're getting, you're now allowing the banks to have a new asset that in the past, you would never been able to borrow against. Um, you can today. So the difference between the par value and the mark-to-market value, because you would have been able to maybe collateralize against your mark-to-market value, now you can collateralize against your par value. So the discrepancy, okay, 
is printed money. So the Federal Reserve opens this new liquidity window, and now they're going to start injecting money into the banks, right? In the same way that quantitative easing did so, right? Through this new loaning, this new loan window, where again, the banks are not going to have to sell these, you know, um, mark to market securities. They're just going to be able to borrow against them at the par value. Both of these points, right, whether it's the bailing them out and charging the banks a big fee that they're going to pass to the customers or the Fed printing a bunch of money through this new window, both of those are highly inflationary, right? Whether you're paying more to be a bank customer, that's an inflation, that's inflation, rising cost of being a bank customer, or them just printing money, which we know is inflationary, right? That's, a, that, that's what inflation is. It's an expansion of the money supply. So both of them are highly inflationary. So you know, this is like, you know, we've got to this point now where we had this financial crisis and bang, over the weekend, they fixed it. Now, theoretically, they definitely, they definitely fixed it. Um, and every person out, every pundit, every person on Twitter, they're all saying it was necessary, including some people that I really look up to as capitalists. David Sachs is one of them. I'm going to call David Sachs out. David Sachs is on the All In podcast. He um, is the voice of reason on that podcast, I think, because he's kind of the only Republican there. Um, and not to say that the Republicans are, are great, but he's at least he's a little bit more conservative minded. And his persona and his personality is, oh, I'm this conservative guy. And, you know, I, I'm a voice of reason when all these crazy liberals are, are thinking this way. I'm going to think the opposite. And so, it, you know, you like David Sachs when you listen to the podcast because he's again, he's the voice of reason. Um, even he is saying this is all necessary, right? And so I posted on Twitter, I said, well, who knew David Sachs was a socialist when it affects his business, right? Because he's a venture capitalist. He's got a bunch of businesses that had accounts at Silicon Valley. I'm sure I didn't listen to the all in podcast on the Silicon Valley. I'm sure he does because most of those tech startups that he finances, you were using Silicon Valley bank. Um, so again, who knew, <laughs> who knew he's a socialist? Well, Everybody's a socialist when it comes to your money. And, you know, that's what's going on, right? Like, these people are wrong. When they say this was necessary, that you have to bail these people out, they're wrong, okay? That's socialism. That's a banana republic. That's a country without law. That's There is a huge moral hazard that's getting created. Now, I'm going to step back and, and talk about the fact that there was already a moral hazard here. The FDIC being in place is a moral hazard, right? Prior to the FDIC, bank accounts were not insured. So if you had money at a bank, it was not insured. If that bank went under, you lost your money, right? So what does that mean? If I'm a customer of the bank, I really want to know, hey, what's your business model look like? Who are you loaning to? Are you loaning to high-risk people, right? And and charging them a high interest rate so you guys can make a bunch of money, pad your pockets, and yet we're going to take all this excessive risk, right? Maybe I don't do business at that bank. Maybe I'm going to go to the bank that loans in a more prudent manner and is a better steward of my capital, Okay, maybe that's where I want to go. And so it forced the banks to become fiscally responsible, right? Because if you were not and you were taking too many risks, well, then customers are going to leave your bank and you're going to fail, right? And you're not going to make much money if you have no customers. So all the banks were, were much more responsible prior to the FDIC because now as soon as the FDIC says, hey, we're going to insure $250,000 no matter what happens if your bank goes belly up, well, if I'm just your everyday consumer that keeps $5,000, $10,000 in my checking account, do I care what bank I do business with? 
Like, do I care what the bank actually does with my money? I don't give even a thought about it. All I care about is, hey, is the, um, you know, is the bank right around the corner from my house in case I want to go to the ATM? And how's their online app? I mean, that's basically the extent of my research that I would do as a depositor at a bank, because all I care about is, hey, is it easy to use? And if I need money to go, you know, to a restaurant, uh, can I just go around the corner and, and go to the ATM without an ATM charge? I mean, that's really all I care about, right? So now the banks have free reign to take all this excessive risk. So the FDIC created this moral hazard and... Now you have this expansion of the FDIC. Now, not only is it 250000 it's a million dollars. It's $2 million. It's $10 million. I'm fully insured. It doesn't matter. So I don't care what my banks do. And now the banks, they say, well, holy crap, that's awesome. We could take a ton of risk. Because think about it this way. If I take a ton of risk and things go well, I get rewarded. I make a bunch of money, right? If I take a ton of risk and things go wrong... I get a bailout. All right. That's fair. That's like paying, playing blackjack, right? And if you win, you win. And if you lose, you get your money back. <laughs> You'd sit at that table all day. You just keep playing blackjack because why not? Even if you lose 80% of them, it doesn't matter. You're just going to keep winning on the 20%. The 80% you get your money back. You just won't stop playing blackjack. I mean, God, there would be a line around the... There'd be a line for miles long to get into that casino, right? So the FDIC created this moral hazard and now they're expanding the moral hazard. And what's it gonna do? It's just gonna create more speculative things, more high risk things, more sub uh, par investments, right? Um, Malinvestments are gonna be made because of this. And this is a real problem. And so again, David Sachs is wrong. They're all wrong, right? Now, you could say that, oh, we can't have a financial crisis here. That would be horrible. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to have a whole lot worse situation on our hands if we keep going down this path and keep bailing everybody out, creating more moral hazards and more inflation. That's going to be worse, everybody. And that's what people don't understand. So how many banks are going to use this loan facility? How many banks are going to use the loan facility and then fail anyway? I have no idea, right? Um, If they fail, I'm guessing that you know, that's going to, we've already set the precedent so that everyone's going to be insured. So I would guess that the two things that they did over the weekend, both insuring 100% of people, setting that precedent, expanding the FDIC's power, um, and then, uh, you know, creating this loan facility so that the banks aren't impacted by bad investments that they made and they're held to maturity securities. I would guess that this stems off some of the problems. I mean, at least as far as the held to maturity losses. Uh, but you have other losses, including mortgage losses. You know, people are going to lose jobs still and, you know, they're not going to pay their mortgages. So there's still going to be a lot more shoes to drop in the future. I don't know where those shoes are going to fall. Um, I couldn't have predicted just like anybody couldn't have predicted it was going to be this Silicon Valley bank with a held to maturity security portfolio that got pushed out by a bunch of tech firms that needed money. Yeah, I didn't know that that's where it would fall. Nobody does. Uh, but there's going to be more, right? And so how are we going to react to them? Are we just going to bail every single person out? I was I was joking last night. I was talking to, um, you know, my, my family. And uh, I was saying, you know, we're, we're at this point now. And this was even before I read the news that they're going to bail everybody out. I said, there's no way. They're going to bail everybody out. Like, we're too early in this. 
they're going to bail everybody out. Like, no no question in my mind. I knew that was going to happen. That's why we bought gold on Friday. <laughs> um, we'll talk about that in a second. So I said, you know, we're going to be at this point in America where maybe within the next five to ten years, we might have multiple of these cycles that we're in right now over the next five to ten years. We're going to be at a point eventually where we're going to be such a socialist country that they're not going to let anyone fail. There won't be a person that files bankruptcy. There won't be a person that loses a house. There won't be a business that goes under. Like, they're just going to give everybody a bailout. I mean, it feels like where we're headed. Like, and then what is that? What is that? That's not a country. That's not a, that's not a market. That's, that's like, I don't even know what that is, but that seems like where we're headed. And, and it's just, it's amazing. Um, so basically crisis averted, right? And it's very similar to what the bank of what happened in the bank of England, right? Last year. So you had the bank of England had to bail out all these pension funds, right? Cause the pension funds had mark to market losses on their bond portfolios as guilt yields went up and they were on margin. So it wasn't necessarily uh, bank depositors in that situation. It was just margin calls. But it was the same problem, right? You had mark-to-market losses because bond interest rates went up and, and prices went down. And so these pension funds were about to lose everything and, and it was going to implode. And so the Bank of England stepped in and bought a bunch of gilts to drive yields down and, and bailed everybody out. And today their inflation rate's 8.8%, right? Like that's what happens. They stopped their inflation fight very early. And I said the same thing is going to happen here. And that is what is happening. This, today, we're going to mark it today, March 13th. This is the end of the inflation battle, okay? Uh, the end of the war, right? Now, the war is going to start again eventually, but but right now, this is the end. They're done, okay? And that is why gold is up 2.5% today. Now, by the way, we did increase our gold position on Friday by 50%. We increased our gold position. From 5% to 7.5%. We increased it on Friday because we knew that there's probably going to be a resolution. And that resolution would include money printing, which it did. That liquidity window is money printing. That is quantitative easing. That is the end of quantitative tightening. That is the end of higher interest rates. We're done, right? So if that happens, then that's an admission the Fed cannot win the war against inflation. They can't win the war against inflation. The dollar sells off and gold goes up. And that's exactly what's happening today. Dollar selling off, yields going down, gold going up. We are done with the inflation battle over okay now the market isn't crashing but and that's because we've got much lower yields right because yields have come off like significantly we went from almost um so yeah the two-year let's see i'm gonna do quick here yeah the two-year was yielding five percent and it's now yielding 4.1%. So the yield went down by like 20%. Yields are down 20% in like a day, right? So, I mean, yeah, the equities are getting a little bump, but they're not up significantly. It dows up a half a percent. I mean, this is not a rally by any means, but, you know, the market's not imploding. But again, I don't think that the market is really pricing in what the end effect here is. It isn't rallying because there's significant weakness across all the sectors of the economy and what i'm going to reiterate right now is our call that the 225 dollars earnings per share estimate for 2023 um or sorry yeah it's uh 222.92 so 223 dollars a share 
for the S&P 500. That's the earnings projection for 2023. That's growth over 2022. Uh, 2022 was our all-time top earnings ever. Uh, if we go into recession, I have no doubt that that earnings estimate needs to come down closer to 200, maybe even 195, maybe even 180, right? But even if it goes down to 200 on the earnings per share, now, by the way, a year ago today, they were projecting $250 a share in earnings. And that's already come down 10%, but it needs to come down maybe another 10%. <clears throat> and if you price the market at 16 times earnings, that's S&P 500, 3,200. At 17 times earnings, that's 3,400. And at 18 times earnings, which is a market that's priced for huge growth, <laughs> then it's 3,600. Now, the market's almost 3,900, so we're still highly overvalued okay, in the equity markets. And there is no possible way that the S&P 500 has all these tremendous earnings because growth in 2023 and then double-digit growth in 2024 are both wrong. It doesn't, it isn't going to happen and it's not going to happen because of inflation, right? Inflation is your growth problem and that's what people aren't accounting for. The fact that the consumer is breaking because of inflation, forget about higher interest rates, forget about higher mortgage rates, very little people are impacted by that, right? Most people are locked into a 30-year mortgage right? So inflation is the problem. And it's getting worse. It's not getting better. And so this 1970s stagflation analogy, the reason we started at the top talking about music, it is highly apropos, right? It is highly relevant. Because 1970s was stagflation, you had slowing economic growth and rising inflation. And we're going to be at a point now with this financial crisis where the Fed has to stop the inflation battle. Because if they keep going, they're going to pile drive us into more um, more financial problems. And they're printing money that's inflationary. So they're going to stop the battle. So now you have inflation and you have the slowing economy because of the inflation. The only way you solve it is you stop the inflationary engine. And But when you do bailouts like this, that's inflationary. So you, so you can't do it. You can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So the problem is that we're now in this position where we have government debt default looming. We have a banking crisis looming. Who knows what other shoes are going to drop right behind this. And we're about to send the signal to the world that we're not going to cut spending, but we're going to print money, right? Because the other option to bail the banks out, if you really thought it was important for financial stability, you could cut government spending, cut out some of the steak dinners and the extra stuff on the government side and spend that money to bail the banks out if you think financial stability is that important. Um, which I think it is, right? So, I mean, I agree with that, but you got to cut spending or, or raise taxes. You can't just print money, but that's what they're doing, right? They're just going to print money. So that moves us further down this very skinny, narrowing road of inflation, right? Think about, you know, you're off-roading and you're, you're up in the mountains and you're on this, you're in a Jeep and you're, you're, you're driving down the road and it's getting narrower and steeper and scarier and the darkness is coming in and, Eventually, it's going to be such a steep hill and narrow track that you're not going to be able to turn around. And if it keeps getting worse and worse, you might have to leave the car there, hike out with no cell phone service, and hope that the snowstorm doesn't come in, right? And that's where we're headed down this inflationary path because every time the Fed wants to fight it, whether it's 2018 when they wanted to preempt inflation or 2022 when they actually started battling it, you run into these financial crises and they don't have the guts to let it happen. So you end up having to bail us out of the financial crisis in the name of financial stability. You can't cut government to do it because you're a, it's a political machine. 
And so you end up in this position where you just create more inflation. So you go further down the road. And this is going to eventually lead to what is a reduction in the standard of living in the future of Americans. And the only way to make it through is to make a whole lot of money so that you can keep up with inflation. You're going to have to do that with very alternative style investing. Buying the market is not going to work because you're not only going to be dealing with inflation, but you're also going to be dealing with uh, a slowing economy, slowing corporate earnings. And so you can't just rely on continued mar multiple expansion. That doesn't happen, right? So you're you're kind of screwed buying the S&P 500 hoping for the best. And that's what as asset, pardon me, as asset managers were trying to do is find other ways to be investors to make money because that's what it's going to take to make it through what we believe is going to be probably worse than the 1970s when it comes to a longer time of persistent inflation squeezing on consumers and 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 economic growth. And so, you know, I'm going to leave us with this a little bit that after 08, you know, people said that inflation wasn't going to come. And anybody that said inflation was going to come after 08 ended up with egg on their face, right? But there are other reasons why that. Globalization was the reason why we tamped down goods costs, right? We imported goods and that pressed the price of goods down and they manipulated CPI. And so between those two factors, inflation never showed up after all the money printing, right? So we got lulled into this false sense of reality that you could print money with impunity and we're still living in that false sense of reality. But that reality is gonna to come to a very harsh close when we learn that the economy is gonna to start to fall apart as inflation is starting to heat up. And that's where we're headed because again, market today, March 13th, this is the end of the inflation battle. Maybe they do another 25, whatever, something small, but they're, they're all but done, okay? And so very important, all my clients are going to be meeting with me after March uh, for our first quarter review meeting. And I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. But I think we're on the right side of this thing. And, um, you know, stay patient with the investment strategy. We were able to buy some bonds up at that 5% level. I think that the yields on the longer end of the curve are going to eventually spike when the market has to start pricing in much higher inflation. And that's going to get priced into yields no matter what the Fed's doing on the short end. So we're going to get that opportunity to buy the longer duration assets. Um, all, all with patience. But again, um, I, I think this is a, just an incredible turning point and I hope I covered it well today. Any questions, always let me know. If you're not a client, uh, please go to freedomandwealthusa.com, put in your information, you'll talk to me directly. We'll do a financial plan, inclu including your tax planning. We'll look at your investment portfolio, um, show you where you might have some pitfalls and maybe where we can improve the risk-adjusted returns for you. All right. Uh, thank you again, Brian Nicolason, freedomandwealthusa.com. I hope everyone has a great day. Uh, if you're in the Northeast, enjoy the North Nor'easter that we're going to get tomorrow. All right, have a good one. The information on this podcast is educational in nature and is not intended to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, or other purpose. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of subjects discussed. The information provided should not be considered tax or legal advice. Discussions and answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and is limited to the dissemination of general information and may not be suitable for members of the listening audience. It should not be construed by any consumer as solicitation to affect or attempt to affect transactions in securities or the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation. 
communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of advisory services offered through Nicolaysen Wealth Partners Incorporated. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should always seek advice from a financial, insurance, legal, or tax professional that takes into account all the particular facts and circumstances of an investor's own situation.